Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. And if you're new with us this morning, I just want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here with us this morning. We're glad that you joined with us. I'm going to start this morning with a story about a theologian. And if you don't know what a theologian is, a theologian is somebody who professionally talks about God, what God thinks and what God does, and uh, that's their job. And this is about a theologian named Jerry Sitzer. In 1991, Jerry Sitzer was with his wife and his mother and his four children, and they're driving home from an event when their car was hit by a drunk driver. And immediately in the aftermath, Jerry Sitzer sat and watched as his wife and then his mother and then his four-year-old daughter died before the ambulance came. He talks about the moments immediately after that when he was at the hospital, and he says, in the hours that followed the accident, The initial shock gave way to an unspeakable agony. I felt dizzy with grief's vertigo, cut off from family and friends, tormented by the loss, nauseous from the pain. I could not escape, and I could not stop crying. Sitzer goes on in his book to relay his journey as he dealt with three surviving children, chronic depression, and trying to cope. And here's a man who was paid to talk about God, and he talks about how difficult it was to pray. He says that he felt a numbness towards God, that he felt a bitterness and a a deep sense of anger, and sometimes these would erupt in just uh, crying out to God during this time. He talks about after a while, he couldn't even cry. After, After weeks of crying, he couldn't cry anymore because the tears were too deep inside. You know, you might think that religious people would be embarrassed by Jerry Sitzer's story. And and you might be right. But one thing we do know is that the Bible is not embarrassed by Jerry Sitzer's story. We know that God is not embarrassed by Jerry Sitzer's story. You see, smack dab in the middle of the Bible is a collection of Hebrew prayers. And these prayers cover the gamut of the human experience. John Calvin called these prayers the anatomy of the soul. Athanasius called them a mirror of the soul. Um, And this is just simply to say that they cover the gamut of human experience. Uh, Some of these psalms are filled with joy and thankfulness and celebration, celebrating marriage and celebrating the beauty of creation and celebrating the great things that God has done. Even celebrating simple things like the ability to uh, accomplish certain physical feats. I love Psalm 18.6. By God's help, I can leap over a wall. Uh, I like to think of that psalm when I'm out mountain biking. But there's a lot of these psalms that are also very dark. They, They show the brutal aspect of life and they deal with ugly emotions. Emotions we probably wouldn't share quickly with people in polite society. They're brutally honest, and they have feelings of exhaustion and rage, feelings of hopelessness and depression and despondency and disorientation. Uh, These psalms really are a little bit scary. They, They talk towards God in a way that are accusatory. They're filled with pain and doubt and grief, and they're honest and unpolished. And we've been looking at these psalms. Last week, we looked at psalms of hate. There are psalms of hate in the Bible where we see the psalmist crying out in injustice and asking for justice. And this morning, we're going to look at psalms of tears. These are psalms where the psalmist is crying out in distress and deep sadness and confusion, both 
tears on the face and tears too deep to even get out. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, We're going to look at these Psalms of tears. And there's three things we learn about our tears in these Psalms. First, we learn about the presence of tears, the potential of our tears, and then finally the prayer of tears. The presence of tears, the potential of tears, and the prayer of tears. So that's our map for this morning. And I've got to tell you, we are going to start with the bad news. So if you thought the introduction was already a little bit of a bummer, uh, gear up, because I'm a bad news first kind of guy. Maybe you're a bad news first kind of person. So we're going to start with the bad news. And here's the bad news. The bad news is, is the Psalms talk an awful lot about the presence of tears. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Psalms, the vast majority, 60% of the Psalms are what we call Psalms of lament, are Psalms of distress and tears and anxiety and weeping. That's 60%. Now, what does that seem to communicate? It seems to communicate that a lot of the life of the person who's following God is going to be filled with difficulty. It's going to be filled with sadness. And just to be sure you understand, these are not just uh, any old tears. I'm, I'm kind of a sentimental person, so I'm, I'm easy. I, I can cry it like a commercial. You know, I, I'm just, I get nostalgic. Uh, uh, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're not. Maybe you think this guy's a sap. You know, but that's just the way I am. But these are not just any old tears. These are tears that come from deep anguish. These are tears of deep sorrow. These are tears that come from trauma. And just so you know what I'm talking about, I want to read a few of these. Listen to Psalm 6. This is what Psalm 6 says. O Lord, I am languishing. Heal me. O Lord, my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Listen to Psalm 39. Ah, God, listen to my prayer, my cry. Open your ears. Don't be callous. Just just look at these tears of mine. I'm a stranger here. I don't even know my way. I'm a migrant like my whole family. Give me a break. Cut me some slack before it's too late. Or again, just so you have a sense of these, look at this one. This is one of the darkest psalms in the Bible, Psalm 88. I call to you, God. All day I call. I wring my hands. I plead for help. Why, God, do you turn a deaf ear? Why do you make yourself scarce? For as long as I remember, I've been hurting. I've taken the worst you can hand out, and I've had it. I'm bleeding black and blue. You've attacked me fiercely from every side, raining down blows until I'm nearly dead. You've made lover and neighbor alike dump me. The only friend I have left is darkness. Wow. These are serious cries. These are the kind of cries that a man like Jerry Sitzer could relate to. These are cries of depression and exhaustion, of isolation and shame. And, the, and, and naturally, when you start reading these, you think, why, why don't we ever talk about these? You know, why? Why don't we ever hear messages about these? Why is this so downplayed? And I think that there's some reasons for that. I think there's some reasons for that. You know, one of the reasons I think is, is that we're Americans. And as Americans, uh, we love the story of the scrappy individual, right, who against all odds makes it. As Americans, we believe that if we pull ourselves together in a kind of collective uh, kind of knowing, we are unstoppable. So we have a unique confidence as Americans. I I know this is true. I was 
Uh, one time I was in a foreign country and I was watching a friend that I was with and he was calling out all the Americans. I'm like, how do you know they're Americans? And he was right. How do you know? He said, watch the way they walk. As Americans, we walk with our chest forward into the wind. And it, you know, I started paying attention. And sure enough, Americans, we walk with that kind of confidence. Nothing can stop us. We are unstoppable. Um, so I think that what happens is, is as Americans, when we open our Bible, these Psalms, somehow they drift off the page for us because they don't make sense to us. America is unique in that we've developed a certain kind of theology. It's called the prosperity gospel. And there's very crass forms of this. There's uh, people that say, all you need to do is say these prayers and, you know, and, and God is going to bless you with all kinds of money. And then there's more subtler forms of this that say, you know, God just wants you to live your best life now. But um, I'm not talking about that per se. I'm talking about even something a little more subtler, something that I grew up with. And that's the idea that as long as we are good Christian boys and girls, that we will never really have something terrible happen to us. Another theologian, Kate Bowler, confirms that this is a common held view that we have. In 2015, Kate Bowler uh, was 35 years old. She had a brand new baby boy. She was happily married. She was living her dream career. And then she started getting pains in her stomach. And it took a, a number of weeks to try to figure out what's going on. And then one day out of the blue, she got a phone call from a physician's assistant who said, you have stage four cancer. You need to drop everything and come to the hospital. And these were her words that she said to this physician's assistant. But I have a son. I, I, I can't end. This world can't end. My life has just begun. In her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, Bowler confesses that although she had written an entire book exposing the prosperity gospel, she still believed that hardships were for other people. They were for people that didn't try hard enough, people who didn't plan ahead, people who didn't plan. She writes, my own personal prosperity gospel had failed me. Anything I thought was good or special about me could not save me. My hard work, my personality, my humor, my perspective, perspective, I had to face the fact that my life is built with paper walls, and so is everyone else's. The Psalms of Lament confront us with the fact that our lives are built with paper walls. The Psalms of Lament tell us that God does not give Christians a pass on pain and difficulty. The Psalms of Lament remind us that we need to expect tears in this life. The Psalms of Lament tell us that we don't get a pass on financial hardship. We don't get a pass on seeing our uh, job disappear, on, on marriage failures, on a diagnosis from a doctor, or any number of difficulties. And here's the thing that happens. Because I think we don't recognize the truth that these Psalms give us, which is that life involves tears, that there is a presence of tears, that we don't expect these tears, our grief is worse. Our grief is worse. When we finally do have tears, we think, why is this happening to me? Why, why me? I've done everything right. I've been a good little Christian boy or Christian girl. I've done everything right. And so now we not only have the grief that comes from whatever it is that's causing us grief, but we have the added burden 
of feeling like somehow there's a grave injustice because we didn't expect these tears. That's the bad news. The bad news is tears are inevitable. It's sobering, but there's good news. So if you're wondering if this was going to be the most depressing sermon you ever heard, don't worry, there is good news coming. What are we to do with these tears? This is where the good news comes in. The Bible speaks about the potential of our tears, the potential of our tears, the the potential of tears. And here's the message the Bible gives, invest these tears. You know, there's two common uh, kind of responses that people um, have when it comes to suffering in life. Uh, Some people stuff their tears. You know, they just shove them down. This is the kind of stoic response. You know, they suck it up, move on with life. These are the people that feel uncomfortable with difficulty, with dark feelings. These are the people that want to quote Romans 8.28 way too early to you. The people who want to deny the power and depth and darkness that sometimes exists in our lives. And sadly, these are the people, because they stuff these tears, they're often the ones that are the most passive-aggressive. They're often the ones that are quickest to give you their political views, the ones that are quickest to be very opinionated. They're the ones that get on social media and get out all that neurosis. On the other hand, you have those that build their life around their tears. These are people that get lost in their tears. These are people that bow to their sadness and they build their life around their pain. These are the people that become filled with self-pity. They have their badge of victimhood and when you meet them, they immediately want to tell you about the tragedy in their life. So you have those that stuff their tears and you have those that sit and build their life on their tears. But the book of Psalms says there's a third thing we need to do and that is we need to plant our tears. We need to invest our tears. Why? Because tears have tremendous potential. Psalm 126 was read this morning. Listen to it again. Psalm 126, verses 4 to 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears or with tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, like all the Psalms, this is a poetic image. And like poetry, it pushes to the boundaries of language in order to communicate something. And the image here is not just of farmers going out and sowing their seed, and they're sad because they have to go to work, and then they're happy when they finally get their paycheck, the sheaves. No, this is a, a different image. It's an image of farmers who are actually sowing their tears. They're sowing with their tears. It also kind of gives this image of their, their tears actually water the ground and allow the sheaves to grow. And the message is pretty clear. That tears, though they are small and seem pointless, are actually a very valuable thing. That tears have the potential of bringing fruit into our lives that would not exist without them. See, the message here is don't stuff your seed. Don't, don't, you know, don't, stuff, don't stuff that tear. Don't stuff that seed away because you'll never have a harvest. But also, don't just take all of your seeds and dump them on the ground. What do you do with your seed, with your tear? You plant that tear. You have to plant it. And then it can bring forth fruit. Now, we don't live in an agricultural community, so let me just draw this a little farther forward. Seeds were seen as a form of economic benefit in an agricultural community. So they would be seen actually as a form of money. So maybe the best way to say this is we need to learn to invest our tears. 
And just like you wouldn't just stuff your money under a mattress, nor would you just throw it into the first, uh, you know, um, stock option that came along, you know, pork bellies or whatever it is, uh, you know, you would be careful with your money. You want to be, make sure that that money goes in the right place. You want to make sure that you, it goes exactly where you want it to go. You want to be very intentional with your money. Why? Because you know that that money has the potential of multiplying and producing fruit and growth. The Bible says, do this with your tears. Recognize that your tears can produce something. And what is it that they produce? Well, it's in this verse. Tears have this incredible capacity to grow joy. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that if you make it through your tears, then you'll have joy. You have to plant your tears. And if you plant your tears, then a whole harvest, a crop of joy can come forward. They can produce joy. This is what Paul says. He says, our slight momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. But how does this work? How do our tears produce joy? How does it work? I'm going to give you three things uh, to wrap up the sermon this morning. How does the prayer of tears work? What happens when we pray our tears? How does it work? Well, the first thing is, is when we pray our tears like the psalmist does, we get a new heart. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel 36, it says, uh, God says, I will remove from them a heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh. What does that mean? What that means is that when God starts working in your life, your heart becomes more of a heart. You're able to feel things you couldn't feel before. It gets softer, it gets more nimble. You become more vulnerable. You become more open to the pains of the world. You become more like Jesus. You know, when Jesus was going around, you know, he was weeping. He was taking in the heart of man and the sin and the brokenness and the people he was healing. And we begin to develop the heart of Jesus. We have empathy. So what happens is when we pray our tears, we begin developing more of a heart. There's a verse that a bunch of men in our church have been memorizing and I had it memorized last week, and I realized I was going to quote it this morning. I should say it from memory, but I lost my memorization. I'm sorry, uh, uh, all of you guys. I know you're all listening to me right now, so I'm caught. But here's 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted with by God. In other words, when we pray our tears, God begins to comfort us. And in that comforting process, we receive a capacity to have a heart for others that we never would have had before. Jerry Sitzer puts it this way. He says, the soul is like a balloon. And when we suffer, it grows larger. And if we do that through prayer, the soul then can experience the, the, the growth of joy, strength, peace, and love. I just butchered that quote, but we'll keep it at that. <laughs> um, so, and, and, and this is what we see in the Psalms. This is what we see happening in Psalms. If you read through the Psalms, there's 150 of them. The very last five Psalms, the very last five Psalms are just, just explosions of joy. You know, if you, and, and you know, it takes a while to get there because there's so many Psalms of lament. But at the end of the book of Psalms, it explodes in joy. 
And this is what Eugene Peterson says about this. We have to realize what the Psalms are teaching us. They're teaching us that all true prayer pursued far enough will result in praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry or fearful the experience of it is, will end in praise. It doesn't always get there quickly. It doesn't always get there easily. In fact, the trip can take a lifetime. But the end will always be praise. There are intimations of this throughout the Psalms. And of course, it's not to say that prayers are inferior unless they're praise. It's only to say that all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Don't try to rush it. Don't push it. It may take years to cap off certain prayers with hallelujahs. So they transform our hearts. That's the first thing they do. They give us a new heart. But then they also lead us to grace. They lead us to grace. So these prayers uh, of tears will lead us to grace. And how so? Well, you know, a lot of them end with hope, hopeful words. Psalm 6, which we read, which says, Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. It ends with this really hopeful phrase. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. It's very hopeful. It ends with this word of confidence that God is listening. But not every psalm ends like that. There are some, like we read this morning, Psalm 88, which end with an accusation towards God. You've attacked me fiercely from every side, raining down your blows until I'm nearly dead. You made lover and neighbor alike dump me. The only friend I have left is darkness. It ends shaking a finger at God. Or uh, Psalm 39, which we read. God, listen to my prayer. Open your ears. Don't be callous. Just look at these tears of mine. I'm a stranger here. I don't know my way. A migrant like my whole family. Give me a break. Cut some slack before it's too late. In the Hebrew, that literally says, look away from me so I can have some peace before I die. Wow. Have you ever talked to God in a way that you went like, can I say that? Well, the psalmist does. This is the most amazing thing. This, this, this look away from me before I die so I can have some peace. One commentator says, this prayer, look away from me, makes no sense. Yet the very presence of such a prayer is a witness to the understanding of God. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. Do you have somebody in your life that loves you enough that even when you are crazy and you say crazy talk, you know that they love you through that crazy talk? Do you know the safety that's found in a relationship like that where no matter how crazy you get, how desperate you get, how, how irrational you get, that person has space for you, they love you, and they're gonna love you through that. This means that God understands us. He understands it so much that he put it in scripture as a way to say, it's safe for you to come to me with your deepest sorrows. It's safe for you to come with me, to me when you are suffering, when you're sad, when you're broken, when you can't take one more day in lockdown, where you need your church, where you're scared. It's safe for you to come to me. God welcomes you. He welcomes you with your deepest fears and your deepest frustrations, your deepest longings. God wants you to know that it is safe to bring the deepest pains of your heart to him. And why is it that we don't do this? 
We don't do this because in order to feel that safe, we have to believe in the grace of God. If you don't have an understanding of God's grace, you won't come to him like this. You'll come saying, "I I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be angry at God. I shouldn't be feeling crazy. And so you won't say anything to God. You'll just close yourself off. But look at these Psalms. God is saying, come to me with these things. I have grace for you. So the first is, is that they enlarge, they enlarge our hearts. And then secondly, it's, uh, the way they change us is that they lead us to grace. And then finally, and this is the one that's, I'm gonna try not to cry because I cried when I wrote the sermon on this point, but these praying our tears, these prayers where we are lamenting, they change us because they give us God. They give us God. What do I mean by that? You know, I've often heard it said that when we pray our deep sorrows, that God comes and meets us. And that's helpful. That's true. God will be with us in our sadness, and God does meet us. But there's something I think that that unintentionally communicates, which I think needs to be corrected, and it's this. It's not that when we are in a place of sadness and despair, when we are in a place of grieving and loss, when we are in a place where where we are hurting, that God comes down and meets us. No, it's quite the opposite. See, the Bible tells us that when we get on the path of sorrow, when we become someone acquainted with grief, we can finally meet Jesus. Because Jesus was a man acquainted with grief. And Jesus was a man of sorrow, and Jesus knows more sorrow than any one of us will ever experience. And he knows your deepest hurts. He knows them. And he invites you to fellowship with him because he knows them. It's like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, You know, they're walking with Jesus, and then suddenly their eyes are opened like, oh my gosh, we've been with Jesus. We pray the prayer of tears so our eyes can be opened to know that he is walking with us, that this is the pathway that he knows all too well. Nicholas Wolterstorff, who is one of my favorite Christian philosophers, says this, it is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it means that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. And we know this is true. We know that the greatest splendor of God is revealed on a cross. We know that God has the saddest face that has ever crossed this earth. We know that this is exactly what the Bible teaches. We know in the words of the spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. Oh, yes, Lord. Sometimes I'm almost to the ground. Oh, yes, Lord. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Glory, hallelujah. You don't need to be alone. Whatever it is you're carrying with you today, you do not need to be alone. Bring your sorrows to the one who knows sorrow better than any of us will, and he welcomes you.
Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come to you, the crucified God, and we ask, Lord, that we would come with all of our sorrows, all of our hurts, all of our trauma, and that we would believe that you have indeed taken on the sadness and the difficulty and the pain of this world. Lord, that that would then give us a comfort. And Lord, we know that you knew what it was like to be abandoned by your friends. You knew what it was like to be alone. You knew what it was like to be with darkness, absolute, utter darkness. That you knew what it was like to be filled with the sorrow we can only imagine as you went to die for us. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are our high priest that you always live to intercede for us. And Lord Jesus, that you are a friend who, who sticks closer than a brother in all of our grief. Amen.